0: Hey, good afternoon. My name is Dr. James Smith, Jr., and welcome to another edition of the Dr. James Show. Thank you for joining us again for our show. We're looking forward to providing information and transformation as we always do. Time for me to bring out my co-pilot. I do not take off without her, Shannon pet Shannon, welcome, welcome back. Get ready to take off and soar again.
1: Can you believe we're here again already? I'm excited. It flies
0: by, it flies by each Tuesday, yeah. just keeps getting here really quick.
1: I know, I'm telling you. Well, I just wanna encourage the guests today because the, the folks who are joining us um, to make sure today, more than any other time, please don't be shy. Uh, and welcome back uh, those who join us each week and those of you who are brand new, uh, welcome. Uh, but there couldn't be a more timely guest in everything that's going on with today's climate. So. I'm really excited, Dr. James, to get started today. And make sure you light up that chat room with all of your questions. This is an opportunity to ask the things that you want to ask, something you're not so certain about, uh, things you need clarity on, all things COVID and health-related. So super excited.
0: I, I'm especially excited for this show because I've watched news, I've watched panels, I've seen videos, but I did not participate in asking those questions. I had to patiently and passively listen to the information that's being shared with me. So knowing that I play a role and you play a role today, it and asking those questions and learning more about this pandemic that's been trending, that's been around since March. So you ready to dive in? Yes. All right, our, our guest for today, let me read just a little bit of his bio because he has accomplished a lot in a short period of time. Dr. Gregory Peck, D-O-F-A-C-S, is an assistant professor of surgery at Rutgers Robert Wood Johnson Medical System, an assistant professor of health systems and policy at Rutgers School of Public Health. He's also a trauma surgeon. He's also a husband. He's also Kennedy's father and Harley's owner. Let's bring out Dr. Gregory Peck to the show. Doc, what's up?
2: Hi, thank you so much for having me today. It's a a pleasure to be here with you.
0: It's our pleasure, it's our honor. We have a specialist who's gonna help us put some of the bridge the gap with our our uncertainty and ambiguity. And I'm glad you're taking the opportunity to be with us, but I wanna jump in right away. Let's go back to March. Go back to March when this started trending and people started working from home and things closed and the hospitals filled, where were you? Mindset, physically, where were you when this started to happen, this being COVID-19?
2: I think if you were to put this in context, um, um, starting with March, I, I was probably two months, you know, in the medical field, in the, in public health, we were about two months ahead of the general population understanding what potentially was coming um, and, and how serious it was. And um, I was in preparation mode as a trauma surgeon, which we may talk about a bit later on, yeah. but I was preparing for the worst um, and knew uh, as an ICU doctor that the worst was going to come uh, on, on my front lines and my colleagues' front lines.
0: When, when you say the worst, what does that look like? What did that feel like when you said you were preparing for the worst?
2: What were you preparing for? Well, you know, to, to sort of put it in, in, in the way that I can easily think about it, as a trauma surgeon, there's mass, ca- mass casualty um, or an event that you know, five to 10 to 15 people are all injured at the same time, let's say uh, uh, maybe a bus accident or uh, even even worse, um, some type of act of terrorism or violence, you know, 5, 10, 15 patients come to you at the same time, and, and you're triaging the volume that's about to come to you at the healthcare system on the front line. But we understood that what was happening in other parts of the world, we weren't talk, We you know, we were not talking about 5, 10, 15 people at a time, we were talking about hundreds at a time, and hundreds um, requiring the highest level of care. Um, the the most um, uh, in, intensive uh, care um, with all of the machines possible, with all of the providers uh, responding to this population that was about to come to us.
0: I know you're skilled in this area. You schooled, you, you've done your residency, you've been at this for a long time. Mentally though, and emotionally, how do you prepare for this? I mean, I know they tell you in school, but how did you prepare? knowing that you were two months ahead of everyone else?
2: Um, it's, it's, it's an interesting question because I think this year for me has been transformative in a lot of ways, I think professionally, personally, um, all, all transformative and, and right around that time where we were being, being introduced to a pandemic that we would all experience uh, probably once in our lifetime. Um, there was a lot of good things going on in my life as well, which was an interesting balance. Um, because of all of the catastrophic uh, events around us, um, there was good things that were happening too, um, you know, uh, as I said, personally and professionally. So trying to put those things in balance and, and understanding that as a clinician, as a surgeon intensivist, um, and, and maybe we'll get into my background a little bit so I can explain exactly what that meant with respect to the first uh, wave of the population coming to us. Um, I was preparing for the worst clinically and emotionally because I knew how much that was going to um, really um, require from the clinicians in the US. But at the same time, professionally, from a research perspective, I was thinking for the first time about, you know, a, a question that I wanted to ask for the first time and answer through um, some more advanced types of studies that I just finished with a public health degree. So it was ironic uh, experiencing both things, an emotional high, perhaps and emotional low at the same time and trying to balance that to move forward for the population that I serve, but also for me personally and my family.
0: I was gonna ask you that, what did that mean for you this year from a family perspective, but it sounds like there's been a balance of professional and personal, but also let me ask you this with you, I'm assuming, since you were frontline, you, you were away uh, for hours working triple time. How did your absence impact how things continued with you and your family during this time?
2: So that's, that's just the thing, um, uh, Dr. James, I, you know, I, I first want to acknowledge all my colleagues, um, and, and, fr- and frankly, some of the younger colleagues, um, and, and, and frankly, the surgical residents and the medical residents, um, and also the advanced practitioners um, uh, who, are, who are advanced trained nurses, physicians assistants, all the physician extenders, they, they some, some, sometimes are referred to in the general population. But um, all of those people that were on the front line, in addition to me, um, I just want to acknowledge for a minute because they were they, they, the shifts were 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Um, extra shifts, double shifts, um, sort of triple staffed uh, at times from what we were originally seeing uh, in January and February prior to, to March. Uh, the way the way that you've put it in, in, in March 2020 was sort of the introduction to, to all of this for us. Um, and and at the same time for me that was a that was a professional shift um, where I wasn't uh, participating in as much clinical care as I had in the past, mm-hmm. um, which if I'm shifting that way um, from what I was doing clinically, um, it was right on because what I was doing also in my studies was shifting toward understanding some of the public health and policy crises that pandemics like this bring. So I was participating in a different way, um, not as much as my colleagues on the front line, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Um, however, to answer your other question, um, you know, being home from after the time I worked putting myself in quarantine and keeping myself uh, and my family safe by living on one side of the home where my wife lived on the other side of the home, uh, we did that for a good two and a half months. So there are aspects um, of of what emotional balance I had to work with my, my my professional work, but also
0: my family life. Thank you. Thank you. Dr. Peck, how do we get here? There's so many different stories and anecdotes and blame going around, but how did we get to COVID-19, get to the panic, the pandemic? And tell us more about what this virus really is.
2: Um, I think it's a culmination of what's been happening um, all along. So I think um, the, the biggest thing for me as, uh, as, as a clinician that also has now uh, had some training in public health and policy, um, It it is an example um, and it's it's the hundredth example of how the health system um, and the hospital system um, address sickness in the population. I think COVID has exposed um, certainly some of the weaknesses but also some of the strengths of the health system and the public health system. And I I think we've gotten here uh, because we have finally met something um, unfortunately, that exposes everything at the same time, uh, but also in, in, in some hope here um, allows us in, in many of the different fields that are responding to this also allow us to have hope in, in a new way where COVID has exposed certain things that I think now the public um, and also the, the healthcare profession are are on a different, um, they're having a different conversation across the table at Starbucks, for example, where it's connected some of what the issue is in healthcare in the United States of America. And I think COVID is the biggest example of all of it at the same time to sort of have us all open up the same eyes, no matter where what walk of life we're in.
0: You, 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 you started answering one of my questions that I've written down and that is uh, how is the COVID-19 pandemic both a public health system crisis and a hospital health system crisis? Let's, let's just start there before I ask the follow-up question. So how is the COVID-19 pandemic both a public health system crisis and a hospital health system crisis?
2: Well in the United States of America we, we, um, we um, we'd like that the health system has historically been very siloed. Um, and, and, and what I mean by that to answer your question is, is there's either inpatient hospital care um, or there's these other things that can be prevented way upstream. Um, um, and all of, you know, heart disease, uh, obesity, diabetes, uh, hypertension, or high blood pressure. Um, These are examples that I think we're familiar with in the public of these chronic health conditions, but um, there's a little bit of a a silo within the healthcare um, um, industry, Um, that that being um, big pharma, um, um, the hospital system, just meaning the the facilities, the hospitals. And then there's this other entity where you have several um, pieces of what's necessary for a population, for example, a state, New Jersey state to be taken care of or the state of Pennsylvania to be taken care of. And, and those thinkers that address that type of approach to caring for the population, in other words, caring for all of the people in a state with diabetes in a systematic way, that is the public health professionals. That is the policymakers. That is the researchers um, that that is the NIH to, to put it in perspective of what's in the news that is Dr. Fauci, for example. And I think in the United States of America, with the, with, um, with the exception of very um, 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 creative, innovative uh, culturally proficient, um, uh, health systems that link with the public health specialists. Um, with the exception of those very, very few health systems and state systems in in the United States of America, we remain very separated. So what I mean by a public health crisis and a health system crisis is that COVID-19, um, it has, it has, um, it has affected every single part of the population. Certainly, aspects of the population to a larger extent, which I think we're gonna to touch on, but yeah. it's touched every part of the population, no matter who you are. Um, and and it also has affected the clinicians that work inside the hospital, because at that point, there's a good portion of the population back in March that was so sick that despite all of the expensive healthcare, despite us being there 24 um, seven, it, it was a little late because of those upstream that public health um, gap where the population is addressed in a certain way so that then it doesn't impact the hospital health system in such a in such a significant way that you don't have both crises at the same time. And the pandemic has been that unique uh, combination of a public health crisis where we can sit, we, we care for the population before they're sick. And then the hospital health system crisis, which which we then care for the
0: patients when they're sick.
2: It's all happening at the
0: same time. Wow, 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 thank you, thank you. Shannon, why don't you join in on this conversation? We're, we're, it's heating up, it's heating up.
1: It is, it is. We have a guest who wants to know if, not sure Dr. Peck, if this is a question for you, but he spent more than 30 years in big pharma and he has heard many talks about drug discovery process and why it could take more than even a decade to bring a drug to market why should we trust this vaccine that has come to market in less than a year? That's the question out there.
2: That's a tough question because I know, you know, now As okay. So being on a public show, it's, it's, it's a different answer um, depending on uh, I think what perspective I'm looking at it from a, um, a, a clinician, uh, a public health researcher, um, a, 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 a potential policy creator um, or, you know, a husband or a father. Um, and that's what I'm getting in touch with uh, in this stage of my life. So why should we trust a, uh, by the way, um, I'll put this in context, the question. Um, as, as a health, as a frontline, as a frontline healthcare worker with the highest risk, um, I'm, I'm eligible for the vaccination as, as tier 1A, as you guys may, may see it referred to in the state of New Jersey. Um, and so, so when I, when I move forward with getting vaccinated, one of the steps is signing a release saying that this is a non-approved experimental drug that the F, FDA has, um, said to move forward with. And it was the first time I actually read that language, mm. knowing that this is in fact an experimental drug, uh, to some extent, um, and, and what we're to go by is the evidence right now. And the evidence suggests, and I want to make this differentiation um, to, to answer the point that, that the caller or, or the, um, the, the chatter, so to speak, has raised. Um, the, 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 the difference with the COVID-19 vaccination is it has been proven to be safe, which means it, it hasn't harmed any of the person's. Uh, participating in the studies. And it's also been proven to be efficacious, which means that it does what it's intended to do. The one thing that the COVID-19 vaccination hasn't been proven uh, to be just yet is effective. And, And you'll hear it because I think it's a misnomer, but you'll hear that it's effective. It's not effective until it makes its impact in the population, in the real population, right? And so I think we can trust the evidence Um, that it's safe. I think we can, we can trust the evidence that it's efficacious, um, with very minimal side effects, but what I'm really interested in, is it effective? Um, is it going to make its impact in the population that, that in a way that we're intending it to? So I trust it because of the evidence and the evidence says that it's safe and, and efficacious, meaning it's not going to harm me to, to a great extent. Uh, um, and it doesn't outweigh the benefits, um, um, the risks do not weigh, outweigh the benefits right now, given that it's a pandemic. Uh, that's what the evidence suggests to us. It's not hurting anyone. And, and, I'll, and I'll stop there.
1: And Dr. Peck, um, Shannon, what else is going
0: on out there? Um, well I was saying what else is going on out there?
1: Oh. <laughs> well, I also wanted to ask, is 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 part of the dynamic of this being so effective is um, that they did put worldwide so many resources and so much money and time and effort onto it as a priority, potentially over other things that maybe the NIH and the epidemiologists were working on. Would I, that I be
2: think. Involved? Yeah, I think, again, it's it's safe. It's It's been proven to be safe and effective. I mean, I'm sorry, safe and efficacious, not effective because we haven't seen what it's doing in the population. So um, just making that point again, um, I think, yes, there's been tremendous amounts of money invested. But more than that, I think what's really, really been um, fascinating to me is. That we were still able to achieve what we've proven the vaccination to be safe and, and, and efficacious but we've done it in such an expedited manner it proves to me and it proves to the scientists out there that it is possible it is possible and I think what what gets in, in, to some extent in the way sometimes um, is is not the consideration for the population and and I think in this particular case the, the consideration of its impact on the population and how big that impact was, we were able to kind of understand that we needed to expedite this. There's a lot of money that has to go into this, but more importantly, I think everyone was on the same, um, 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 on the same team in a, in a different way than there's been in the past, mm-hmm. despite what you see in the news. There's people that are in the news Um, And there's people that are working behind the scenes. And, and I think it's been very professional of Dr. Fauci, for example, to, 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 to not, to, to make sure that without saying it and without being um, like the administration has been, frankly, he doesn't have to say that it's what he does as a scientist. It's, it's the population is the consideration. Um, uh, And that's the main, that's the main difference. Money. Money. That's been invested in the population here. And I think that's been a fascinating thing with respect to the vaccination and development of the vaccination.
0: Yeah. Thank you, Shannon. Thank you so much. Dr. Peck, with regard to the population, what advice would you have for organizations that are having people come back on site, as well as individuals? What do we have to be mindful of to be safer? You know, there's more of a chance for wearing masks. We, got that? Is there a particular type of mask? Or just in general, organizations and individuals, what do we need to do in order to be more mindful, to be more safe during this next phase of this uh, pandemic? I, I think you know, certainly
2: I, I think our society is changed um, forever. Um, and I think forever for uh, good reasons. Um, I think you'll see um, many more people even after this, quote unquote, settles down wear masks, I think this is um, widely accepted in other regions of the world um, where, where it's normal and it's natural um, and it's responsible. Um, you know, I, I can say, um, y- you know, there are many people in our culture and let's say the North American culture that look at other things that, that, that are happening around the world and, and, and they ask um, frankly, silly questions, uh, because they haven't been in those people's um, um, world, they haven't been in those people's situation, they haven't experienced um, things like COVID-19 pandemic, where other regions of the world have. Um, but but when, you, when you see people wearing masks before COVID-19, of course, in other regions of the world, they, they're not only wearing masks to protect themselves, They're wearing masks to protect fellow citizens and other members of their society, other members of their population, because there's a different thought process in other regions of the world about protecting your neighbor. And that's cultural. Um, And and so with COVID-19, I think there, I can only hope that um, we understand what we do as individuals affect everyone around us. And, and that's something that I think uh, North America is gonna be changed forever about. M- my actions um, do affect others. Now, um, wearing a mask is gonna be one thing that we do. Um, social distancing, I think there will be um, applications of that um, certainly with large collections of people. I think, you know, for example, sports arenas will be designed differently. I think we understand that. So social distancing will become part of North American culture. Um, and, and also, um, I, I hope vaccination um, also becomes a change in our culture um, and this, and conspiracy theories, despite what evidence um, uh, may suggest, conspiracy theories still continue. Um, now, if something were to happen, and, and let's say the vaccination is not proven to right. be effective in the population, then we have to understand why with data and not just assume that it's some type of conspiracy theory that this was never, never a true vaccination from the beginning. And I think that's the other way our society is sort of changing where we, where we think the, the better of science, we think the better of, of, of persons that are in positions to protect the society, uh, protect North American um, 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 from destructing itself um, and, and trusting that, that, that uh, portion of the workforce. I think that's gonna be the other change I can only hope
0: for. And hopefully there'll be more of a belief in the science, in the research, not just the opinion or a practitioner's story about how he or she perceives it, but to really trust the research and trust the science. Dr. Pett, prior to uh, this year in my business, I was on the road 65% of the time in the air, hotels, airports and so forth your thoughts about what that's going to be like in the future for those people who are frequent flyers any ideas any thoughts
2: I think I think I think, um, I think the industries um, in that space will adapt and, and they'll adapt through creativity they'll adapt through innovation um, and we, we see a little bit of that already. And, and I think we're gonna see more of that as things are safer um, with respect to your risk in the general population. Uh, there'll be more innovation to um, um, sort of um, have an inherent thought towards safety um, with more of the population. The airport, um, let's, let's, let's call it the travel space, um, that industry, yeah. Um, they're going to adapt, um, and and we're going to buy all of that adaptation if if it's within our if if it's within our means. Um, but having said that, I think um, this is important because I think what COVID nineteen in its in, de- in its need for adaptation, innovation, creativity, I think it also is calling for that 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 adaptation, creation, uh, creativity, and innovation um, in the social responsibility part of all of this this as well, to get back to my other other point about the population, understanding a little bit more about personal responsibility and responsibility towards society, um, that the the industries that stand to profit, um, of course, there's nothing wrong with them profiting, but as long as they're profiting uh, with social responsibility. Um, And I think that those spaces that you bring up, um, Dr. James, I think it's going to be safe to travel ultimately, but you will be a different traveler. I think that's going to be part of your personal responsibility, your, your responsibility toward um, the people around you, but also you're going, to, um, you're going to have an easier time doing that because the industry is going to adapt, innovate, and create. And thank God for that um, because we may be a healthier society in general because of that, not just from inhalant um, um, uh, threats, but also hand touch um, you know, in the airport, for example, um, space yeah with respect uh, to the airport crowdedness, things like that, I think we'll adapt
0: just fine. Well, your thoughts help reinforce my belief that when people say, I can't wait to things go back to the way they were, they're never going back. We're not gonna see that again. It's gonna be different. Shannon, your thoughts on that?
1: I agree, um, but I am looking forward to a healthier way. And I think if everyone works collaboratively together, like Dr. Peck was saying, we can get there, and we'll just have a new normal. Um, but we do have a question uh, with lockdown and social distancing. Mental health uh, has seen its own underlying crisis. And do you see changes in men- mental health care as we go through the pandemic? Uh,
2: mental health care is a—it's—it's it's a great topic. It's a—it's a hugely underserved um, uh, area of healthcare toward our population. Listen, just a personal um, uh, take on this. Um, I think 2020 has introduced to me for the first time, some of the mental health um, that I'm responsible for personally. Um, I can't say that without um, this isolation to some degree, social isolation, that we've had to um, really consider our personal mental health. Um, There's been an unprecedented opportunity to consider oneself, to consider one's life, to consider your interaction with your family, to consider your interaction with your children um, uh, and a different interaction with employees. Um, And so we spent so much time at the workplace where that's a type of communication. It's a type of interaction. And we spent little time at home, and that's a certain type of interaction and, and and communication. I think that has flip-flopped. COVID has flip-flopped that phenomenon, which has introduced a lot of mental health considerations to us as individuals and as society um, as a whole. Um, now, whether or not you have access, you have a socioeconomic status, you have a color of your skin, you have a cultural understanding or difference and you have access to then um, care as a result of realizing some of the mental health that, that, we, that we struggle with, that's a different question. But I, th- I think certainly COVID-19 has introduced, at least in my personal story, um, something about my mental health that I never paid attention to before. Um, but again, um, I would say that I have the means um, and the experience in, in dealing with some of that. There's a large portion of our society that does not have the means and does not have any experience in understanding uh, maybe not what anger is, but instead anxiety, uh, not, not understanding what violence is, maybe depression, um, those kinds of nuances. And, and that's, that's what I'm interested in doing with the rest of my life is, is providing access to a certain portion of the population that is underserved with some of these things that are only considered uh, because people with money and people with with means can 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 speak to this um, to answer your question, Shannon.
0: Doctor Peck, how did you get on this trajectory? A little bit about, about your background, how you started moving on this journey, and which journey is that, Doctor James? Like what, what you talked about recently—that's where you see yourself going, moving working with people more underserved, the inequities that are there. But you can even go back to when you said, I'm gonna be a surgeon, I'm gonna be a trauma surgeon. And now I'm going to move to a whole new phase. Um,
2: Yes, so so the new phase that I'm talking about is a deeper understanding of the the inequities that exist uh, in the care of the population. But my interest in that population um, has has been an interest throughout my life. The the interest, um, to your point specifically, choosing trauma surgery, um, my understanding of trauma uh, and the population that is trauma um, uh, was the inner city young African-American youth um, that was um, um, exposed to violence at a very young age. And the reason I chose trauma surgery was because there there was a population there of young children that um, did not choose their, their, their path, the path chose them. And so with trauma surgery, that was the population that I knew I would serve. I also knew that that population was a population of lower socioeconomic status that I would serve and um, trauma surgeons in general, uh, acute care surgeons, um, which is a little bit of my background. Are surgeons that take care of emergency surgeries, that take care of trauma, and that take care of people that are critically ill with multi system organ failure in the surgical ICU. But that population um, that is critically ill, that requires emergency surgery, and has an higher, higher incidence of trauma injury is that population uh, that I mentioned, which is a population of color and a population of lower socioeconomic status. Um, so I think. Underlining my choice to be a trauma surgeon from a technical standpoint, using my hands, being in the operating room, was this other very humanistic uh, part of my choice, which was the population that I would serve ultimately. Because I, as as others, um, was a bit of a troubled youth in some sense, um, um, and and just wanted to connect <laughs> something, and wanted to connect with that population in 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 caring for them, but also wanting to understand more about the population. Um, and, and that's, that's what, had, that, that's what uh, originally uh, sent me down the trauma clinical path. Now, understanding a little bit more nuanced that there's data that suggests what my original thought was with a particular population and the patterns in which uh, care was needed to be delivered to them, there's data there to suggest that I was on the right path. And now, um, from a data perspective, trying to drive change so that... That's not the population we're caring for in the emergency setting, in the trauma, injury, violence, um, exposure. We're, we're addressing that population way upstream where they, their trajectory can be altered by uh, more preventative health, for example. More mental health uh, early in, in, in certain populations, in certain settings in the US.
0: I think you've begun to address my, my other question, and that was what populations are disparately affected by the COVID-19 pandemic? And how does this provide perspective on other health equity and inequities in the U.S. healthcare system? So you've begun to speak to that. Did you want to add more to it?
2: Yeah, so, so where I do um, my, most of my critical care is in New Brunswick. Um, and in New Brunswick, there is a Mexican-American population. Mexican-American population, interestingly, um, of which 90% are from a particular area in Mexico called Oaxaca. Um, we serve a predominantly Latino population in New Brunswick. Um, and the surrounding areas, uh, in, in, in that County, um, are certainly counties, uh, with certain socioeconomic status that we serve at a safety net hospital in New Brunswick. Um, it's, it's, it, it, there's no longer any debate. There's, there's data and science that prove this, um, um, while controlling for other factors that the, the population that has been uh, disparately affected by the COVID-19 pandemic has been the Latino population and the uh, black population. Now, but the question is, is um, not why is that new, um, yeah. it's why is it the same? And what the COVID-19 po- what the COVID-19 pandemic has done is it's introduced that concept to everyone. Right, so there might have been pockets of healthcare that understood that, or pockets of healthcare that were that were interested in that. But now it, uh, everyone understands it because everyone, in some way, shape, or form, in the healthcare system, the public healthcare system, the administration, the financiers, the governor, the um, the Department of Health, everyone has been introduced to this idea that wait a minute, it wasn't just COVID nineteen pandemic. That that the Latino and Black population were disparate with respect to their outcomes, with respect to their access, with respect to the lack of preventative health, not emergency care, right? Um, it, it it's throughout. It's it's with all healthcare. It's with all healthcare disparities. It's with all health disparities. So now the now the question becomes: What do we do about it? Yeah, and yeah, who's doing something? And who's doing something about it? Um, and, and I think there is a good thing about everyone being now aware of what potentially we weren't aware of before. And again, there's another part portion of the population that has a good amount of implicit bias where they're still not seeing it. Um, but there's, there's, there's process, you know, trust the process. Um, but we, we have to, we have to leverage what we've, learned from the COVID 19 pandemic and apply it to just about every other healthcare disparity and health disparity that we know um, um, that the population has so that we can make some real, pro- we, we can have some real progress here with respect to uh, equity um, and, and really getting at the root from a, from a data perspective. And in other words, from all of these social determinants of health um, to scientists, to clinicians, to financers, Understanding which data points can be put together to say, hey, these are the most common data points that suggest this is why the Black population and this is why the Latino population and other populations that are underserved uh, are disparate and have inequitable or 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 inequities in their healthcare outcomes. Um, I think it's promising. We're in a good, we're in a good, we're in a good place.
0: Dr. Pitt, what would limit us or others from leveraging the research? That shows that there's disparate uh, things just aren't there. What what would limit that? All that great research and all the momentum that's being built around clarity. What would limit us from leveraging that? Um,
2: Institutional racism, uh, frankly. Um, There, there are ways that the systems are set up, Um, and the the the. There's a saying that um, you get out of the system what you've designed the system to do. Wow. Right. And so I think there is need for real aggressive, um, courageous, bold moves toward understanding, not, not institutional racism as a concept or institutional racism as something that we read about or institutional racism as something that we see, but instead institutional racism as something that we participate in right? Personally, we participate in it, right? No matter who you are. And I think that there's a large population that understands they've experienced institutional racism. There's a large large population that has participated in institutional racism. And so how do those two populations have a conversation? And um, that to me is what the money should be invested in, is really getting at helping folks understand their blind spots. Mm. Um, And and that's going to cost some money because we're going to have to get creative in the way that we do that. But it's time.
0: It is time. It is time. Speaking of time, just an aside, it's time for the portion of this show that is called The Hot Seat. With The Hot Seat, I'm going to give you a series of words, whether it's one word or two words. And I'd like for you to give the one word that comes to your mind when you hear that word. So one or two words, I'll give you the word, your best one word answer. What comes to mind, your knee jerk reaction? So the the first word is leadership. Sacrifice.
1: Hmm.
0: Safety. Everyone. Sacrifice. Honesty mm-hmm. mass safety <laughs> COVID nineteen hope trust conditional patience needing more medicine. Responsibility. Frontline workers.
2: Congratulations.
0: Hope. Reciprocity. Shannon, pet doctor. P is off the hot seat. Thoughts, (laughs) reactions.
1: That was good. Very, very good. I, th- I think I want to know very quickly from Dr. Peck is what will be the first thing you do when the COVID restrictions are lifted?
2: Take my wife and daughter on a vacation.
0: <laughs> That's a great answer. <laughs> We're getting close to a nice little reveal. Who might that wife be, Shannon?
1: Oh, I don't know. I think, uh, you know, she might be in a rectangle right now. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> any any other thoughts out there in the chat room for your husband, Dr. Peck?
1: Folks are just agreeing, um, saying, you know, thank you for touching on mental health. It's so important. Um, you know, just, you know, great answer about institutional racism. And um, you had mentioned to help folks understand their blind spots, and folks are agreeing with that um, wholeheartedly. Good stuff.
0: Good stuff. Do you I'll have one? Say- in addition to once the pandemic is over.
1: (laughs) Do I have one? Oh yeah. Do I have one? Um, I think I'd like to socialize more because I think having the option taken away from me made me really take a look at how much I kind of may at times isolate to my own responsibilities and tasks that I need to do. And I think I'm going to be more socially responsible being social um, where I'm not gonna take it for granted anymore where you, can, you think you can just go see people and it's been taken away. So I think I've, I'm, I'm valuing that a lot more.
0: Thank you, good stuff. Thank you, Shannon. Dr. Peck, how will you know we've turned the corner? How will you know things are getting better from a way of life standpoint where there's so much still division in our, our society? How will you know we've turned some semblance of a corner?
2: It's a great question, uh, Dr. James. I think it's behavior and, and, and how we can measure behavior. And I think the, the way that I'm going to measure behavior that we're turning the corner. Um, and again, this is a point. The population has a responsibility here, uh, we all do with with our behavior. Um, our behavior is going to lead to hospital admission or no hospital admission. Um, and I think once the hospital admissions and certainly from my perspective, the ICU admissions go down, then there's evidence there that we've turned a corner and that's reflective of uh, all of our behavior.
0: Yeah. From a day in and day out standpoint, having been part of this journey this year, back in March and April and May when we were really into it, places where I would go food shopping, their regulations were, listen, you put your your items on the belt and the person behind you cannot do that until you're rung up and they have to wipe down the belt before the next person can do that. Some of those stores only have one way to come in and one way to leave they've stopped enforcing that. It's almost as if it's like, okay, we're getting better so we can be more lax. And it's frustrating because I'm that guy who, if you put your stuff on the belt, when I'm there, I'm gonna give you the side eye. I'm going to basically look you into putting your stuff back into your car. What do we need to do to, to maintain that, that focus and, and not being lax and thinking that things are okay.
2: I think um, just not giving up. Uh, you know, I think everyone's effort um, day to day it, it adds. It's it's you know it aggregates, if you will. Um, and I think it gets back to thinking not only for yourself but also thinking for the community you live in. Uh, and that community may be, you know, uh, your home. That, that, uh, that has, you know, four people, five people, whatever the case may be. It may be your workplace. It may be, um, you know, your walk up and down your street, um, whatever the case may be, you're responsible for yourself and also your community. Um, and I think also to what you're seeing, Dr. James, is also folks that um, have a very regimented way of going about it, which they um, have now applied to their daily workings at the, at the, at the, at the supermarket. So I hope that there's a process there that we're not seeing as much anymore because it's just inherent. Um, But I think also too, you break, you, you make a, you make a great point. The, the way that we maintain the rigor with safety uh, and, and, and the appropriate behavior that is safe behavior um, is also um, personally requesting it. Um, and, and to each other as neighbors say, you know, listen, I, I, I would like to just remain socially distanced um, and not politicize it. Uh, but it, but it's actually a neighbor to a neighbor saying, hey, listen, this is my boundary. And, and, and that's how I think we maintain rigor is really,
0: really finding it important and communicating it. Thank you. Question I, I should have asked early on, and I, I'm really looking forward to the answer. Is there a difference between a, uh, a cloth face mask, or a surgical mask, or the respirator mask, it's, is, what are your thoughts? Many of us have the cloth, but I do see some people with those pretty intense respirator-like
2: Yes, masks. so the best way to understand this is it's really scaled, so it's an N100 mask, which is the fully, you know, uh, encompassing mask. The N95, which you see most of the ICU workers um, wearing uh, ICU healthcare providers, wearing uh, where it's a thicker cloth. Uh, and then you can go down to material materials like clothing and then paper masks, which we wear in the operating room. I mean, essentially if everyone wears a mask um, you're protecting yourself and you're protecting your neighbor. And that, that is as simple as paper masks. The, there, there has been some recent uh, data out of Duke that suggests that with certain masks worn down, if one were to sneeze or to breathe or to talk, if masks are loose fitting, then there's some particles that escape. But really how these masks work is that they have a certain density of filtration systems. So the N100, the full mask, it, it, it filters the finest, tiniest particles mm-hmm. um, at, at the highest rate. The paper masks suffice if they're worn correctly, if they fit correctly, if they're not worn um, um, to, to a point where they're wet. Um, and also if you and if, if, if uh, I said it backwards, if I or, or, or and you, I should say, wear it. So that's another thing to consider, too, that the masks are only as safe as the people around you. So that's where this social responsibility, this social pressure, if you will, comes in and is our own social responsibility. The masks differ. Uh, But again, the PPE shortage across the US and the world have limited us to everyone wearing the most expensive, the highest-filtrating mask anyway. Bottom line is I think everyone wears a mask, everyone wears a paper mask that is a new mask
0: and wears it so it fits. So these masks prevent the droplets that might be out in the universe that may play a role in us contracting the virus.
2: Yes, indeed. And, and, and the thing to consider is, um, you know, what is your environment around you? So closed environments, single rooms as opposed to open rooms, rooms with windows open, sitting in the passenger side as opposed to the rear left side uh, door side of the car. Your closed environment contains the particles and your masks are essentially trying to filtrate as many particles from escaping you and as many particles from being inhaled. But more importantly, those masks, the paper masks that is, they protect the escape, not necessarily the, the inhalation or the exposure. So if everyone prevents the escape, then we're all safe as a society. And, and, and that's a little nuance in the mask wearing. When I'm wearing a mask, I'm protecting you to a, to a bigger degree than I'm protecting myself at the lower scale masks. When I wear the N-hundreds, I'm protecting me and protecting you uh, to a greater extent. So there's a little nuance there and social responsibility there as well.
0: Good, That's good. Talking about nuances, there's one more nuance on the show, and we call it the mini keynote, M-I-N-I keynote. I'm a keynote speaker. I'm a motivational speaker. I talk about a variety of topics, and we've added that element to to our show. So we're going to give you... 30 seconds as you brush up on your keynote speaking ability and look right at that camera and give us 30 seconds of your best stuff relative to where we've been, where we're going, and what advice you would have for those of you who are sitting on the edge of their seats attached to the computer waiting to hear from Dr. Peck right now.
2: I think um, in in 20 seconds, um, it's... It's learned to uh, trust the healthcare system. You know, people are uh, on the front lines, caring for you and your family. Um, and I think um, there's there's um, there is a good amount of discussion to distract you from their intentions in being there for you and being there for your health. I think COVID nineteen has brought the population together in a lot of ways, and also uh, have brought the the healthcare um, uh, industry as a whole together in a lot of ways. Uh, But that is in fact dependent on how the population um, looks at us, views us, and values us. And we're excited um, for the future in which the population values us uh, in in a new way um, so that uh, we are serving the population to the best of our ability. So, And I want to thank all the, the healthcare workers out there for, for giving your life, uh, sacrificing your life, frankly. Um, it's not figuratively, it's literally. Uh, and thank you for the year that you've served. And, and, and thank you for the growth that you have seen in yourself, people around you. And, and thank you for continuing to move on despite the loss that you
0: might have experienced as well. Thank you. Phenomenal, phenomenal. Thank you, Dr. Peck. What's next for you? You hinted a little earlier about some of the roads you may take. What's first? What's immediately next for you going forward?
2: My next short-term dream and intermediate uh, goal is to be um, funded by the NIH to conduct um, disparities research. Um, and uh, something else that I'm excited about and I, and I do want to um, 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 sh- give a shout out uh, to some degree, Um, I'm excited about Rutgers University's um, new president, um, Jonathan Holloway. And I think um, that's what I'm excited about in the future. That's what's next is it's trying to understand that type of leadership and how how transformational that type of leadership is gonna be for Rutgers University and also for the state of New Jersey and the population that we serve.
0: Love it, love it. I'm gonna look forward to putting my hat in the ring because I teach for the Rutgers University Executive MBA program. Been working with them since 2009. So I look forward to connecting there as well. Shannon, it's almost time to land the plane. Thoughts?
1: No, we don't want to. I just want to echo, you know what, what uh, Teresa, one of our uh, guests today have said, you know what, thank you, Dr. Smith and Dr. Peck for a most informative program about COVID. We have these questions about not only COVID, but the vaccine, mental health, etc. Bless you all. And um, you know what, very appreciative. And uh, Clapping hands, well said. And again, thank you to all the healthcare workers. So, outstanding presentation.
0: Well, it was the first time I was on a flight with two pecs and (laughs) we we navigated it safely.
2: (laughs) Dr. James, can I say something?
0: Yeah, sure, sure.
2: I I would not have been able to get through this year without my beautiful wife and her undying support and her at times unconditional love. And, And I just wanted to say, I appreciate that. I wanted to say that publicly. Um, It's been a a bearable, successful year because of you. Thank you so much. And my beautiful daughter, Kennedy, uh, who's just been an
0: exceptional 15-year-old throughout all this. Thank you.
1: Oh, thank you. Appreciate it.
0: All right, Dr. Peck, you just created some tissue issues. You know that, right? (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for joining us today. Um, We look forward to seeing you you next week. Uh, Hope you took in The words, the thoughts, the advice that Dr. Peck provided, stay safe. Consider what was shared. It's up to us to be responsible. If we handle our charge, we create greater possibilities for safety. One more thing to say, you've just been gem See you next week.